This is Metro Focus with Raphael P. Roman, Jack Ford, and Jenna Flanagan. Metro Focus is made possible by Sue and Edgar Wackenheim III, Philemon M. D'Agostino Foundation, the Peter G. Peterson and Joan Gans Cooney Fund, Bernard and Denise Schwartz, Barbara Hope Zuckerberg, and by Jody and John Arnhold, Dr. Robert C. and Tina Sohn Foundation, the Ambrose Monell Foundation, Estate of Roland Carlin. Good evening and welcome to Metro Focus. I'm Jenna Flanagan. Their interaction in a Manhattan subway car lasted only minutes, but the aftermath of Daniel Penny putting Jordan Neely in a fatal chokehold is still unfolding. Services are reportedly planned this Friday for Neely, the entertainer and Michael Jackson impersonator with a documented history of mental illness and homelessness who witnesses say was acting erratically on the subway. Authorities say Penny, a former Marine, who claims he was acting in self-defense, put him in a chokehold to stop an attack, but there was no indication that Neely had physically attacked anyone before that. On Friday, Penny surrendered and was arraigned on a second-degree manslaughter charge. He was released after posting bail, and his attorneys maintain he will be fully absolved of any wrongdoing. Tonight, we're joined by Jeremy Saland, a criminal defense and trial attorney who served as a prosecutor in the Manhattan District Attorney's Office, and Graham Weatherspoon, a retired NYPD detective and board member of the Amadou Diallo Foundation, which advocates for racial equity. We should also note that Graham's nephew is serving as an attorney for the Neely family. Gentlemen, I'd like to welcome you both to Metro Focus. Thank you very much. Thank you. All right. So, Jeremy, I want to start with you because so often with these cases, uh, there's what the public feels and what the letter of the law says. So when it comes to the manslaughter charge, which the Neely family has already indicated they think should just be murder, can you explain, um, theoretically at least, because I know you don't have inside knowledge on this case, but how we could have arrived at uh, the manslaughter charge instead of murder? Certainly. So when we discuss murder, we also have to first discuss and recognize that homicide does not have to equate to murder. And a murder is an intentional crime. In other words, your argument would have to be in proof beyond a reasonable doubt that Mr. Penny had the objective, the goal, the intent to kill and take Mr. Neely's life. On the flip, there's other statutes that could apply. Here, we're dealing with a reckless behavior so that Mr. Penny was aware of the substantial risk of life potentially to Mr. Neely. He disregarded that risk or behaved so recklessly that ultimately... Mr. Neely passed due to that behavior. And he, again, he was aware of that risk. So it's that reckless behavior and that awareness that is beyond the standard of a reasonable person. And what I mean by that is he didn't behave in a reasonable way that resulted in the passing of Mr. Neely. All right. And as you described that, I do want to note for our audience that we at Metro Focus have made the decision not to show uh, the uh, civilian made videotape of uh Mr. Penny holding Mr. Neely in that fatal chokehold. But now, uh, Graham, I want to turn to you and get your take on, first of all, the uh, actions of the police department, or perhaps lack thereof. One of the things that sparked the protests in the first place, obviously the murder, but also the fact that uh, 
NYPD officers apparently interviewed Mr. Penny initially and then let him go. Um, can you help us understand what is police procedure in a situation like this? Yes, I have worked homicide cases in the past, and this is what we call a ground ball case. We have the victim, we have witnesses, and we have the perpetrator. Uh, upon arrival, you will have a first officer on the scene generally who will detain everybody, and then the detectives will come to conduct, if possible, an interview of the witnesses at the scene. Uh, Mr. Penny was there. And whether or not they gave him his Miranda, I do not know. But he, I'm sure, made statements with regard to the fact that um, Jordan had made some statements and uh, said he was hungry, didn't care if he lived or died, as has been reported. But in getting to the fact that he said he did what he did to protect himself and others, Mr. Penny should have been taken into custody. We have a deceased human being here. Once an arrest is made, the police cannot void the arrest. That individual has to go downtown and the district attorney, if this district attorney so chooses, can state, we are gonna do a 343, we decline to prosecute this case. He never should have walked out of the command or out of the custody of the police once taken into custody. That should not have happened. Um, this is why we have courts. The police cannot summarily say when a person winds up dead that it's okay, you can go home. That was not the proper thing to do. I don't know who the detective supervisor was that made the call, but somebody should be answering for that. Well, Jeremy, again, going back to the letter of the law, and first off, just so that we all understand, um, your experience with the, uh, I believe it's the district attorney's office, correct? Correct. Yeah. So, I mean, you've worked under previous uh, DAs, not the current one. That's correct. I worked under Robert Morgenthau for seven years, a little more than okay. seven years. All right. So with that understanding, because I'm now wondering how much uh, does public outcry influence uh, what that office does. For example, um, there was another case where uh, a bodega clerk, if I remember correctly, uh, had stabbed an attacker and was charged with murder, but the charge was dropped after weeks of outcry. And so I'm wondering how much does public outrage, public protest influence what goes on in the DA's office? Or is it just a matter of, you know, attorneys having the time to go through all the facts of a case and perhaps come to a different understanding than they initially did. Correct. I, I, so there's, it's a very emotionally driven issue. And I can understand that sometimes perception becomes reality. And I don't know if I'd be so quick to fault the DA's office for not initially pursuing that case. Now, to Graham's point, which is a valid one, there's an arrest and that arrest needs to move forward in some capacity. I'm sure that the NYPD was in conversation potentially with the homicide assistant who basically would be working that night in the DA's office if there's any homicides, or even hire brass, if you will, to determine what to do next. And I think the difference here between the case you just cited and this case is that there was a clear action of that resulted in the death of this in the bodega situation, whereas, and there was a more of a violent scene, whereas here there was more eyewitnesses, which 
I don't believe, if I recall correctly, there was in the initial part of me, in the other matter, uh, we don't know if there was other video. We don't know what these witnesses saw. And I think law enforcement collectively had to determine what actually happened because there can be a homicide, but we've heard stories of one punch homicides and that doesn't warrant an arrest for, for a murder if that wasn't the intent. Someone gets struck, they hit their head on the ground and they pass. So here, I think it was critical because there always is that presumption of innocence and there's always proof beyond a reasonable doubt. And the DA's office does not want to be, I don't want to use the term chastised, but they want to make sure they get it right, right out of the gate. Because if they do something wrong, again, perception becomes reality that that taints the whole case. So I don't fault them setting aside what Graham had just said about the NYPD's role and not pursuing that initial arrest. Graham, does that sound correct to your knowledge as uh, a police officer, former police officer? Well, I know that in working homicides, you work in conjunction with what is called the riding ADA. And that ADA, assistant district attorney, is assigned to work with the detectives on the case to make sure that everything is done properly and in order so that if there's going to be a grand jury, if there's going to be a trial, and you want to placate any possibility of an appeal. So the police and the district attorney should be working closely together uh, as a result of the homicide. I don't know when the riding ADA came in. Uh, they should have been notified of the incident and an ADA should have responded. So we are, we are led to believe that the police released them. I don't know that intricacy, whether it was the assistant DA or the, the uh, police who released Mr. Penny. And as a result, as you said, um, perception can become reality at times, but it is very disturbing uh, to have seen what I saw on video. And we've been seeing this in repetition. We've seen it since Rodney King, that's almost 30 years ago. And the lack of respect for human life, where we're at a point now where people just shoot videos as opposed to taking some type of additional action uh, to bring a cessation to what is going on. But I do not know, as I said before, I don't know at what point the writing ADA arrived and whether he was released as a result of the ADA's um, assessment. We don't know. Well, I am wondering now, does it make a difference that uh, from what we, well, not from what we understand, we know, uh, Penny turning himself in versus uh, being arrested? Like, for example, Jeremy, I'm wondering if uh, in a trial case, does that make a difference that the defendant willingly turned himself in to cooperate versus the offender, the defendant, excuse me, was arrested? From a practical standpoint, it's of no consequence. That's not coming out on a trial. That's not coming out on a hearing. It makes more sense than doing it the other way, meaning the police coming for you because it's risk to danger, reaction, responses. So once there is an investigation, there's a communication, generally speaking, and I'm sure there was here between Penny's counsel and the DA's office. So it was done in a, in a I'll use the term, easy, voluntary manner. Um, and and to, to Graham's point, again, I think Graham is correct. We, neither one of us know what happened and transpired, I'll use the term, behind the scenes, not in a bad way, but the communications with the DA's office and the NYPD about what to do. But I want to just point out one other thing. 
Mm-hmm. I don't know. None of us know. Was there someone else who claimed to have a video who had left? Is there people who said conflicting things? So in arrest, we have to decide as law enforcement, what is the charge? That, you know, what is the crime that you're going to charge? So there is a lot of homework to do. And, and it can be absolutely frustrating. And, and Mr. Neely unequivocally, unequivocally should not have died. Period. Period. There's no asterisk here. He should not have died. And I would like to know, as a jury will ultimately find out, is was was Mr. Neely, pardon me, was Mr. Penny justified? Was there an imminent use of imminent imminent fear of, of danger or serious physical injury or death? I think it's going to be tough from the evidence that we've heard so far. And I think Mr. Penny is in real danger himself now of a conviction from what we've learned, from what we've learned. Well, you know, you know Yes, I'm sorry, Graham, what were you going to say? You know, the, the first thing that they touted was that Mr. Penny is a former Marine, a decorated Marine. Um, there is always the what I call the poisoning of the jury pool. Uh, a person's criminal background will be released. And in and, and this case, the backgrounds of both gentlemen have been released. Uh, Jordan with 30 or 40 prior arrests and Mr. Penny is a decorated Marine. But that, in my opinion, that creates a problem for Mr. Penny. Um, I was in the reserve officers training corps at City College. We trained to kill people. That's what we did. That's what Marines do. And I cannot speak for Mr. Penny, but his actions, that whole is not a restraint. A citizen has the right to make a citizen's arrest when something occurs and detain an individual for the arrival of the police. That hold that he put on Jordan was not a hold to detain somebody. That was a chokehold, which I do know how to do, all right? He executed it to the point where he took a man's life. He didn't render him unconscious, which is a crime. There there are other charges that could and should have been preferred in addition to the manslaughter charge. Strangling somebody in New York State is a crime. Cutting off the air supply, the blood to the brain, it is a crime. And it's been a crime. People talked about Eric Garner. There is no Eric Garner bill. These statutes were on the books before Eric Garner was murdered. It is a crime to cut off a person's breathing capacity or the blood to the brain. And when you get to the point that they're rendered subconscious, and now we go to the point where the individual is dead, you're in felony statute territory for those crimes. And under the penal code, it makes mention of a hate crime. It talks about um, the agony that you're putting the person through. It goes to the state of mind now of Mr. Penny in terms of what he was doing. Yeah, he's a decorated Marine. We know he was taught to kill people, and that was a death hole. There are problems for his defense, in my opinion. If I could follow up to to what Graham just said. Absolutely. So most of what he says, I I agree with. Um, To me, the issue is not whether he committed a crime or not, because the crime was committed. Um, we can disagree maybe on the actual crime. I, I think that the big issue for Mr. Penny is, was he justified? And from what we have seen, what we have seen, there is nothing that strikes me as the justification to put that chokehold as opposed to a restraint 
on Mr. Neely. There was nothing that was so imminent and so threatening that we have heard from or seen that said Mr. Penny should react as he did and used a, a, a take an action that took someone's life. Restrain him is a little bit different. Maybe even punch him is a little bit different. Um, so it's vastly different. But what I would also add is that we're operating a bit in a bubble. And we all want to, you know, you mentioned a hate crime or Ram mentioned a hate crime. We need to look at the evidence. We need to look at the evidence. And as important it is for us when we are accused of a crime to have that presumption of innocence and make sure the people have that burden of proof that they need, even you have to extract the emotional piece. I'm not minimizing what happened at all. I'm only making the statement that we can all speculate. We can all have emotional and anger and frustration and sadness and disappointment among many other feelings, but we need to let the process play itself out. And I do believe that unless something different comes out, Mr. Penny is in a real risk of being convicted of a crime because it doesn't matter that Mr. Neely had a criminal history. That's irrelevant. That's not even right. part of the conversation. It's, it's, it's just a distraction. Um, and again, to Graham's point, and I keep on throwing, throwing Graham your way to say, <laughs> I agree, I agree. I do believe that as a former Marine who is trained in these skills, that that does potentially cause a problem for, for Mr. Penny. It's not as if someone like me who doesn't know that grab and accidentally did it, he should have or could have reasonably foreseen the risk if you misapplied this that could take someone's life, this meeting the chokehold. So then when you speak especially of the emotional aspect of it, um, and uh, Graham, I believe you were you know addressing that, what it is that people do and do not have the right to do. What has been made a lot of is the fact that so many New Yorkers are now finding themselves uh, feeling either unsafe or perhaps afraid, definitely uncomfortable on New York City subways. And so I guess the question becomes, and again, this is not to make light of what has taken place uh, between Mr. Penny and Mr. Neely, but what is what are people's rights when they are confronted with someone who is acting at least erratically, not laying hands on anyone, but acting erratically on a subway train, which again is a metal tube underground. What what are the what's the advice for best practice to keep yourself safe and not cause harm to anyone else? I would say having been a transit police officer and worked on train patrol back in the 70s when crime was through the roof, where it is now is a, a smidgen compared to what it was then. Um, I would say that when you're on the subway, be well aware of who's around you. In a case where someone is loud and boisterous, and again, the folks are in a train, it's a moving vehicle. It's not stationary. You cannot get out of the car. So the best thing you might want to do is avoid eye contact with that individual Look around, look somewhere else. Do not engage that person visually. At the next stop, I would get up, summons the conductor, let the conductor know there's a problem. And this is, this is another problem we have presently. I don't know what the current staffing is of the transit bureau within NYPD, but when we had the transit police department prior to the merger, in 1995, we had 3,600 men and women in the New York City Transit Police. You don't have those numbers today working in the Transit Bureau. We also had train patrol. And 
offices were up and down the trains, but that was primarily in the evening. I ride the subways at least once a week. I tell you, I have a hard time finding a police officer. And the conductor will make an announcement, for instance, at Hoyt and Skimmerhorn, uh, if you have a problem, the police are at this station, you can get off the train. That doesn't help you if you can't get off the train. The police officers are not on the trains. It's hard to find them on stations. And I'm saying this as a writer. I'm not saying this as someone that's afraid to ride, but I can imagine the concern that people have because of the lack of police presence. The uniform police officer's job is to deter crime. That's the uniform officer's job. People don't generally rob the bank if a police officer is standing in front of the bank. And people do not act out in these ways when police officers are present. No, we can't have a cop on every station, on every train, but you should be able to see a police officer at some point during your journey on the subway. Well, another question also is, uh, and Jeremy, this will be directed to you. There was another uh, gentleman, I believe another passenger on that car who was saying that he actually tried to intervene and help, but wasn't quite sure what to do. Um, and correct me if I'm wrong here. I'm fairly certain New York state has a good Samaritan law. So uh, when it comes to people seeing something that they in their gut know is wrong, um, is there a responsibility to step in? Are there, again, best practices based on uh, a good Samaritan law? If it exists, can you help us out? You know, is it someone's responsibility to step in? It's not their responsibility. It's not their responsibility to put someone in danger. But what I what I think is more of a, a bigger issue or concern, it's I, I am grateful that we have a video of what transpired so we can get some insight to see what happened. But instead of filming, take action. Take action that doesn't hurt you or harm you or put other people in danger. That action may be if there is cell service in between the stations, you call 911. That action may be using your voice. And there was someone, I believe, who was reported as saying, you don't want to catch a murder or something to that effect, right. uh, indicating that this looks serious. Not, like, that's problematic for Mr. Penny again, but get, be involved. It's okay to put your head down. It's okay to walk away. We all do that all the time. You know, when you're on the subway or in a comfortable position, someone's loud, cantankerous, or just singing to themselves. New Yorkers kind of look down, do the thing, and move away. But this is a prime example. Use your voice. Take action. Don't pull out a weapon. You know, don't 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 hurt someone else. But take action. That voice, to, to Graham said moments ago, the presence of the police deter. But you can deter too if you use your voice and just react. Don't just film or look down or look away in those moments. Well, in addition, uh, we did see, I mean, we've been speaking about Mr. Penny, but there were uh, at least, I believe, from the video, two other individuals who were also, um, I'll just say, laid hands on uh, Mr. Neely with, I'm assuming, the intent to restrain. But again, do they face any possible legal action as well? Graham, do you want to go? I don't want to jump in. There is a phrase that we use acting in concert. And the question is, to what degree did those individuals engage? I remember seeing, I recall seeing, I think they were holding his arms at some point. Correct. And the thing is, is that I think one of the guys that was 
holding his hand. So you don't want to catch a murder because holding the hand, you can tell if a person is resisting when you're holding the hand. If the hand goes limp, it's evident the person is not struggling. In addition, Mr. Penny wrapped his legs around Jordan's legs. So his movement was totally restricted. And it was at that point that somebody should have said, all right, he's out. You know, he's out. Let him go. We, we've, we've got him. But that did not occur. And I don't know if they know who those two gentlemen are at this point. That I don't know. To follow up on what Graham just said about accomplice mm -hmm. liability, um, I think from what I have seen, it would be difficult in terms of a prosecution to prove beyond a reasonable doubt that they were accomplices and shared that same recklessness or shared that same, use the term intent, but you know, the, their actions and their, their mental state were shared in part with Mr. Penny. So I think it would be difficult, especially because these two people, while there's a reasonable standard here, we don't know if they're trained yeah. in any of these restraints. They're just regular folks, for lack of a better term. So I think, you know, they subjectively thought they were doing the right thing, or maybe that got caught in the moment. That doesn't necessarily rise to criminality. All right. Well, final question, because we have about 30 seconds left. But Jeremy, I'm just wondering, we understand that uh, Penny's defense, uh, at least, has raised about $2 million for this. Does that guarantee anything or is that just $2 million that's been raised and that does not have any impact? You know, at the end of the day, you're only as good as the evidence in your counsel. Um, you know, your counsel's ability to introduce evidence, preclude evidence. Uh, it's not always about the truth of the facts in law. It's about what evidence comes in or can't come in. Um, and if he has competent, skilled counsel, that whether it's $2 million or $2, there's great, phenomenal legal aid attorneys. There's great, phenomenal private attorneys. And the flip is true, too. So $2 million is $2 million. It shows social support for him, but not necessarily changing the outcome of the case. No. Thanks for tuning in to MetroFocus. You can take our award-winning program with you wherever you go with MetroFocus, the podcast. Listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts so you never miss an episode. Or simply ask your smart speaker to play MetroFocus, the podcast. Also available at metrofocus.org, wliw.org slash radio, and on the NPR One app.